Hello, everyone. Welcome to JCV Art Studio Season 4. My name is Joanna, and this morning in my little area of the world, I woke up to fog, fog horns. I didn't know at first what the heck the sound was, but now the sunshine's coming out, the fog is burned off, and I think it's going to be a good day. So, like I said, my name is Joanna. I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. They've just, the covers have just been branded because I'm thinking of the third book, Spy Girls, coming out next year. Yes. And they look, they look pretty cool. I'm really happy with them. But enough about me. Today, I have award-winning science fiction author, Edward M. Lerner in the studio. On Edward's website, it is written, Edward is the perpetrator of science fiction and techno thrillers. While you probably know Ed from his science fiction novels, including the Interstellar Net series and the epic Fleet of Worlds series with Larry Niven, Edward is also a prolific author of acclaimed short fiction. And he has just come out with The Best of Edward M. Lerner, and it showcases his finest and his favorite shorter works. Now, Edward is a physicist and computer scientist. After 30 years in the industry, working at every level from individual technical contributor to senior vice president, he now writes full-time. In addition to science fiction and techno thrillers, he also writes popular science, notably including Trope Inc., The Light Fantastic, the science behind the fiction. Edward is the recipient of the Canopus Award, a Hugo finalist for Best Novelette, Championship BTOC, Fate of the Worlds with Larry Niven, was a Locus Award finalist. Now, Edward, 23 books, which include 16 novels, one nonfiction, short fiction collections. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Good, good. Now, the best of Edward M. Lerner. Can you share with the listeners what type of short stories they will find in the in the collection? And personally, I am interested in deco punk. Okay. Well, the brief answer is all sorts. <laughs> uh, there are stories varying in length. Uh, from uh, flash fiction to novellas. In terms of science fictional themes, there's everything from time travel to parallel universes, first contact with aliens to cybersecurity, wow. and a whole bunch more science fictional themes. Uh, Decopunk is kind of an interesting thing. It's science fiction somehow related to the science and technology or the ambience of the 1930s. There's not a lot of SF that's set in that era. So writing stories set there was a lot of fun. That sounds cool. Oh my gosh, that sounds really cool. Okay. Well, I like to think so, but you know, arguably I'm not totally objective. <laughs> so before we get into your books, 
you once wanted, I saw this, you once wanted to be a rocket scientist. And I'm wondering, have you filled that dream through your stories and novels? Sort of, kind of. <laughs> and even before I started writing, uh, as you mentioned, my uh, education is in physics and computer science. And that led me to working for lots of interesting places, including seven years as a contractor for NASA. So uh, I met astronauts. I uh, flew the uh, space shuttle training simulator, did lots of interesting things. And uh, later on, it turned out to be very handy background for writing science fiction. Yeah. yeah. A lot of, some of my novels, certainly not all of them, have NASA personnel as uh, protagonists. Now all I have to do is find a few more cents in my uh, sofa cushions, and uh, maybe I can uh, get on a private flight. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Thinking of the shuttle training simulator, I'm going to, I'm wondering how that feels like. And the reason why is I remember when I first met, when my husband and I first met. So my husband's name is Edward, Ed. And what that guy did is first date, we had a fair in our local city. And we went on one of these rides, which is kind of like half a circle, half like a, like a, you'll know. You remember when um, the Fabergé egg came out? Okay. Like women were buying nylons and those little egg eggs. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it was like one of those, but cut in half. And my ad, I didn't know it at the time, went on this thing with me, which spins you around and you go around. And I thought it was the best ride. And he gets motion sick. So he didn't want to tell me. We came off that ride and he's looking really white and he goes, I need to walk. Right. And then he admits <laughs> he does get motion sick sometimes. So I was wondering what the shuttle training simulator was. Okay, there is a type of simulator that I think you have in mind that can have you spinning in three different axes. Yeah. And happily, that's not the sort of simulator I was in. Okay. Okay, that's zero gravity training. The simulator I was in, at least the way it was used, was to practice landings. Okay. So... Uh, the shuttle lands as a glider, and it has the aerodynamic properties of a brick, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So even though I talk about flying the shuttle simulator, a more accurate term is crashing the shuttle simulator. <laughs> it doesn't hurt anything except, you know, the, the would-be pilot's ego. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was seriously cool, though. The, yeah. the simulator that you sit in is an exact mock-up of the space shuttle uh, cockpit. Yeah. And where the canopy would be our uh, TV screens, so it looks like you're coming in to Cape Canaveral for a landing. Oh, cool. It's very realistic. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. th thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Did I interrupt you? Was there one more, anything else you wanted to say about that? Um, well, beyond that, it was fun, which uh, goes without saying. Yeah. Uh, now, in addition to getting into the space 
shuttle simulator by virtue of working for the contractor who built the thing. One of the perks of uh, working for that contractor, they were also building a simulator for the space station, which was under construction at the time. Wow. And that wasn't as dynamic. That was just something you walk through yeah. and uh, see what the, the rooms are like. But that was also sort of keen. So, cool. yeah, that was an interesting few years of my life. Cool. Well, and I could see, gosh, man, that story. You got so much story material with that. Okay. So thinking of your stories, you're a prolific writer. How did you select, select which stories to be in this collection? With great difficulty. Yeah. Okay. I've lost count, but I've probably had about uh, five, six dozen stories published over the years. Wow. And I wanted something that covered the scope of what I did, something representative. Um, I wanted to be objective about this somehow, but there are no official rankings of what are the best stories. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes I pick stories that were award winners or award nominees. Yeah. Sometimes I pick stories that were successful in the sense of either editors or writers or my own perverse mind couldn't let go of. And so they led to series. Some of them even grew into novels later on. In a couple of cases, uh, I just picked personal favorites. Okay. 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 Good. Good. Now, you were on the Douglas Coleman show. Um, I, I've, I was just recently on the Douglas Coleman show. And you were talking, the two of you, you and Douglas Coleman were talking a little bit about Elon Musk and his desire to fund space travel. And I was wondering what some of the issues you were dealing with with your current novel, because this had been brought up and it had to do with the first explorations to Mars and the cost to travel to Mars. Okay. Boy, that's a very expansive topic. <laughs> I'll throw in before I directly answer that this was before uh, Elon Musk decided to set fire to $44 billion. Okay. And I was, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I thought, as I'm asking, I'm thinking, do I even want to say pre-Twitter? But go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Certainly, cost is always going to be a factor. Uh, coming up with billions and billions of dollars uh, is something of an obstacle for pretty much anybody, I think. I think. But in my mind, the bigger challenge is just making the commitment to do it. The Apollo missions to the moon were a political statement. If we hadn't been in a Cold War, it never would have happened. So, you know, we planted flags and uh, boot prints on the moon, and uh, we'd won and we went home, and we haven't been back for more than 50 years. Yeah. Okay, so tomorrow, in theory, NASA is finally testing a moon rocket again. If it uh, doesn't get messed up for the fourth consecutive time that they're trying. And I am convinced we wouldn't even be trying to go back now if uh, China wasn't uh, making efforts to get to the moon and uh, kicking off a second space race. Really? Oh, yeah. Uh, 
going to Mars uh, also has some really serious technical challenges. It's so far that um, using current technology, it takes about six months to get there. And orbital mechanics being such as they are, there's only uh, one opportunity lasting a few weeks that opens up every 26 months to fly there or to fly home. Now you consider those intervals and what that tells you is unlike the moon where you can get there in a couple days, you could resupply in a couple days, you can uh, maybe send a rescue party in a couple days. When you send people to Mars, they'd better be self-sufficient. So the bottom line for me is it's not just a rocketry problem to explore Mars, you have to learn how to live off the land, beginning with how do you produce oxygen you can breathe and how do you find water you can drink? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And I'm just thinking you said every 26 months? Like you, it's like you have such a slim. A couple of weeks every 26 months, yeah. Holy smokes. Okay, so, okay, I don't want to get too much off on a tangent here. And if you see me mute, it's because my the oldest dog is, is not happy. Um, so this... I'm thinking of characters. You must have seen that it, there's a specific type of character who wants to be an astronaut and, and go through that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. 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 So staying on the topic of Mars, I'm finding this quite fascinating. And like I say, if I mute, it's just because my... The oldest dog, what he does is when the youngest dog is doing something he's not supposed to, the oldest oldest dog tries to tell me one moment, Edward. That's fine. Not a problem. Staying on the topic of Mars, I really find this fascinating. Now, again, on the Douglas Coleman show, you had mentioned that the soil on Mars is poisonous, which, yeah, that, that, that. Now, you know, I never gave thought to it, but mm -hmm. it, that makes so much sense. So in the novel you're working on, how are you remedying this, this, this fact? Okay. A word about the toxicity of the soil. It's not even soil, technically speaking. Okay. What uh, agronomists call soil is dirt but it also has lots of organic material mixed in with it. And there is no organic material. <laughs> you know, organic material is bacteria and decayed dead stuff. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, you only have dirt and you don't have the nutrients. The dirt on Mars technically is called regolith. Is full of peroxides and perchlorates, which are as toxic as they sound. Yeah. So, virtually all known forms of uh, earthly life would be poisoned by this stuff. Yeah. So, if you're going to produce food on uh, Mars, what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, in uh, my book, Mars Life and Death. Uh, there are several teams of astronauts involved. One group is trying hydroponics, which is when you root your plants in nutrient-rich water. Okay. So you have to provide some nutrients, 
but uh, you don't have to detoxify the soil. Okay. Another group is dealing with um, aeroponics, which is where the, the plants have their roots just hanging in midair from a tray and you regularly mist them with water that again is enriched with nutrients. Uh, longer term, some possibilities are very advanced chemistry. Um, you may have uh, heard about people who are trying to produce uh, fake meat yeah. that's uh, printed from vegetable material. So advanced enough chemistry could produce food from uh, chemicals and bypass this whole messy growing process. Okay. Um, or advanced genetic engineering could produce breeds of plants that are uh, tolerant of these toxins, but uh, don't absorb the toxins. Okay. So th there are possibilities, and I like to think sometime we'll get to try them out. Okay. So maybe because I used to watch Battlestar Galactica as a, as a teenager, there isn't an option. Now, you had mentioned gravity. Of We couldn't take like our own little greenhouse onto like the shuttle with our own dirt. <laughs> that that well, you could sure you could bring your own dirt, yeah. but uh, it'd be pretty heavy. Okay, okay. And uh, the more people you want to bring, the more dirt you would need to bring. Right, right. Okay, that's that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Now, back to the best of Edward M. Lerner. In your story, The Torchman's Tale, you have humor with your characters. Now, in particular, this one character, uh, you say he may be mobile, possibly a bot, and this bot walks into a bar. Now, can you tell us a little about this bot and how he drinks alcohol? Yeah. Well, certainly any story that begins, anybody walks into a bar has to have some humorous elements to it. <laughs> All right, about the Torchman's Tale. The character has uh, a mechanical exterior, certainly. Yeah. But he has, bi he or it has biological parts. And it's the biological parts that uh, can appreciate the alcohol. Yeah. As to exactly what kind of critter this is, is it a robot? Is it an android? Is it a cyborg? Is it, uh, you know, choose your poison? Yeah. Uh, that's a big part of the story, and it's a, a late reveal. So that's kind of a spoiler I don't want to offer. I will say that he or it uh, has a tragic and elaborate backstory. You know that because you read the story. Yeah. Uh, that he's on a quest. Uh, and that this kind of very strange, hard to believe, and yet credible story taking place in a bar is part of a long science fiction tradition. Arthur Clarke has um, a whole collection of uh, bar stories called Tales from the White Heart, which is uh, a wonderful uh, 1950s or 60s or so uh, collection of short fiction. Okay. Well, what I liked about it, well, there was lots I liked about it, okay? Um, you talk about the cloud 
and the entire Cooper belt. And I've interviewed fantasy authors, and most of them have uh, an elaborate map, you know, um, as soon as you open the book there you have where you know an elaborate map where the story takes place and as i'm reading the torchman's tale i was wondering has edward created an entire solar system <laughs> <laughs> that would be ambitious <laughs> yeah i actually saw someone posting on facebook recently a meme that says if the front of a book has a map it's fantasy okay Okay, it turns out that's not quite true. I have a, a hard science fiction novel called Energize, which is a near future techno thriller set mainly in Earth orbit. And it has a map of what's going on in Earth orbit. Okay, okay. Okay, anyway. Yeah. No, I did not uh, invent a solar system here. <laughs> the solar system in which the story takes place is our own. The, the Kuiper belt is basically like the asteroid belt uh, most people are familiar with, except it's much farther from the sun. It starts out past the orbit of Neptune. Okay. The Oort cloud is a bunch of extremely remote comets that's even farther from the sun, uh, possibly extending as far as a light year or two. So even though these uh, aggregations of remote astronomical objects do exist uh, and are real, I still had to do some world building. Yeah. Which is to say, I had to come up with a, a concept of what the civilization was like out there and how people lived. And certainly that was world building. And some degree of world building goes into, I'm convinced, every science fiction story, whether or not there's a map involved. For the Mars book we were talking about, I didn't have to create a new map for Mars, but I certainly spent a lot of time looking at the maps NASA has uh, aggregated over the years. That's fascinating. <laughs> I'm just, I'm getting such an edgy, I'm getting an education here. Thank you. Okay. So can you give our listeners a little idea of what the Torchman's Tale is about? And I have to say, what I, what I like, what you did, is as the bot is telling a story, you know, his story, what happened to him, more and more strangers come to the bar. Like, you, I'm talking mm -hmm. with my hands here, but that's how I could see it as he's, he's getting more into a story. So can you give our listeners uh, a hint of what the Torchman's Tale is about? Well, sure. I mentioned that this being this biological mechanical uh, composite uh, is on a quest. He comes from a long lost uh, colony somewhere deep in the Oort cloud. And more than anything, he wants to help these people. But the, the colony is now lost even to him. Uh, as in every proper quest, he has to face uh, obstacles that are all but insurmountable. Uh, I think some of uh, those obstacles in his case are pretty unique, and that's part of the spoiler, so I won't say what. But uh, he's certainly on an adventure. Did you read science fiction as a child, or did the desire to write science fiction come 
to fruition because of your work? I can't remember when I didn't read science fiction, you know, oh. back to second, third grade, you know, juvenile science fiction, obviously, but yeah. I've been a fan roughly forever. The idea of writing came significantly later, and it was basically on a dare. I was reading some book that uh, was eminently forgettable, and so <laughs> I've forgotten what it was, so, yeah. and the author of this uh, bad book can thank me for that. Uh, and apparently I was complaining. Yeah. My wife um, said somewhat sarcastically, so I suppose you could do better. Maybe she'd read the book and liked it. Yeah. So at that point, I pretty much had to try, right? Yeah. Well, I did. It turned out I could do it. It turned out I enjoyed doing it. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. That uh, effort turned into my first novel called Probe. It came out in 1991. It's been reissued three times since then. Fantastic. Still sells regularly. Given your interest in my NASA experience, the protagonist in that book interacts a lot with a NASA person. Uh, I was uninvolved with NASA at that stage in my life. By the time I sold the book and it was published, I was working as a NASA contractor. So wow. that was uh, sort of an instance of uh, life trying to imitate art. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Now, I really enjoyed, this is another story in the best of Edward M. Lerner. Okay. I really enjoyed Judy Garland saves the world and I don't mean Oz. And what was really cool is I had read The Torchman's Tale, and then I read the Judy Garland story, and they are so different. And if I didn't see your name on the stories, I would have thought two different authors had written them. Like, they are, they are that well-written. Excellent writing, Edward. So how did you get the idea for Judy Garland Saves the World, and I don't mean Oz? And is this story an example? an example of deco punk. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, the kind words. I try to write very different stories, very different novels. I don't want to get immersed in some endless series where all the books are basically the same. I would agree these uh, two stories are uh, are quite different. Uh, this very much is deco punk. The uh, the main character is a woman who worked as a waitress and sometimes as a tour guide in what was in the 30s and 40s, a famous Deco era resort. It was in what was at that point, a very prosperous town called uh, Winslow, Arizona. It was prosperous mainly because it was physically located conveniently uh, for airplanes that were trying to fly across the continent when planes didn't uh, have much range. So it was an airfield between uh, Denver, I think, and uh, Los Angeles. Anyway, how the story came about, that was a bit of serendipity. Uh, my wife and I were on vacation in Arizona. Yeah. And uh, former physicist that I am, there was no way I was going to not see Meteor Crater, yeah. 
which uh, is huge. It's a fantastic uh, uh, thing to see if you've uh, never had the opportunity. That happens to be located near uh, Winslow, Arizona, and this uh, former resort called La Posada. And uh, the resort had recently been renovated and brought back to its deco era glory. We happened to spend the night there. Part of the restoration involved signs about uh, famous people who had stayed at the resort, including Albert Einstein, uh, Howard Hughes, oh, wow. and uh, rocket uh, pioneer uh, Robert Goddard, and a whole bunch of other famous people. So between Meteor Crater and these famous people living there, before uh, we left the next morning, I had uh, the first inklings of a story in my mind. There was no way this wasn't going to turn into a story. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I, I could just see, oh, yeah, I, I could, oh, yeah. Every writer listening to this is thinking, yeah, with with those surroundings, there, there's, yeah, I'm just thinking there's a story here for sure, for sure. Okay, so you mentioned Crater, and I, so I I don't know how big this crater is, when we were in Maui, we went to, we went up. Well, we went up. We, I just remember it was a long incline up. We drove, I think it's Haleakala. And then we drove, we walked down. I don't know. I think it was 2.5 kilometers um, down to this crater. And it was interesting, Edward, because I never thought myself, um, scared of heights, and I don't think I am, except there was something. So what had happened is my spouse and I, we agreed, let's walk each of us away from each other and then stand so we're at the opposite ends and wave like to each other, okay? And, For scale. Yeah. And I remember I was walking, 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 and then the further I got away from him, and I, I think the big mistake was I looked down and he could tell that I started to just slow right down, you know, like, and he was looking at me th saying, are you like shouting? Are you okay? And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> so he did all the walking around. So he was opposite me, you know, but so did you see the crater? Because I know when I saw that crater, I was, well, hey, you heard my mm -hmm. reaction, but I was just... It's an amazing sight to see a crater. So did you see that crater? Oh, absolutely. Now, yeah. the craters in the Hawaiian Islands are volcanic craters. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, I did see the volcanic crater at Volcano National Park on the Big Island, okay. which is huge and impressive. Uh, Meteor Crater in Arizona uh, is a completely different kind of crater. It was the kind blasted by a big hunk of rock falling out of the sky, literally a meteor. Whoa. And it's about half a mile across and several hundred feet deep. Yeah. And uh, it's really amazing and impressive. But this uh, thing about what kind of craters there are, 
is very confusing. And in fact, in the state of Idaho, there is a, a national park called Craters of the Moon National Park. Yeah. And you would think that would have something to do with meteors. And it doesn't. Okay. Uh, it was, it's volcanic territory and it got its name before people figured out uh, how the moon got its its craters. Okay. Well, I'm glad I went off on that tangent, tangent because, okay, so this is so interesting. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So back to your stories, back to your stories here. Um, what I find is there's a definite feeling of humanity in your stories. Um, do you, like, like I said, I'm a mystery thriller author. So I, I want to say forgive my newness to this genre. But do you believe it is important in science fiction to portray the humanity? Okay. Well, I think it's important in any fiction to have humanities in the characters because Stories are about people. Yeah. And the fact that science fiction has a science element or a technology element doesn't detract from the point that stories are about people. Yeah. Having science fiction, the definition of people is broader than usual. Yeah. So sometimes the people are aliens or artificial intelligences or artificial intelligences built by aliens or something even weirder. Yeah. But ultimately, you're telling stories about uh, someone or something that's thinking and experiencing, and the reader has to somehow get in tune with that. One of my favorite authors, and I like to think one of my influences, is Kurt Vonnegut. Okay, and yeah. One of Vonnegut's uh, principles for story writing is you have to give the reader at least one character to root for. If you don't, if you hate everyone in a story, why are you reading it? Well, I read it. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. I'm writing that down. That is really good. That's really good advice. Yeah. Okay. As, as you can tell, my gears are going thinking about the story I've been, I've been writing. Okay. So now thinking about technology, I'm wondering, because I'm also thinking about the Judy Garland story, which was so good, like so good. How has science fiction changed from when you started writing to now? A lot. Yeah. When science fiction got its start uh, in its early heyday, what uh, is unfortunately called the golden age because it implies everything since is downhill and that's not true. Yeah. But in the so-called golden age, 30s, 40s, 50s, science fiction was basically about physics and chemistry and technology that depended on physics and chemistry. So there was a lot about space travel and rocket science. And certainly a lot of science fiction still deals with those things. But since those early days, the science and technology and science fiction has certainly expanded. So there's a lot of science fiction more recently that deals with biological themes and certainly a lot that uh, works with uh, genetic engineering and uh, what that might bring us. Yeah. Back in the 
30s, 40s, 50s, there were no such things as computers. Well, I guess in the, the 50s, there were the occasional monster mainframes that occupied whole rooms. Yeah. But uh, now there's a whole subcategory of science fiction called cyber fiction. Oh, really? Uh, in some cases, even a subset of that, cyberpunk. Oh. Uh, given my computer science background, certainly a lot of what I write has a uh, has a computer theme to it. Okay. 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 I know you're into mysteries. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a series of stories um, dealing with a bored artificial intelligence who amuses himself uh, solving human crimes. And uh, so those stories are mysteries and uh, they're very much cyber themed. Okay. Okay, cool. So I'm just thinking here, as you were talking, you had mentioned I'm slipping in one more question, Edward, before we wrap this up. You had mentioned that the 30s and 40s was considered the cyber age. No, and the golden age. The golden age. Sorry, the golden yeah. age. Why do you think? One second, Edward, one second. What's a Zoom call without dogs and children? <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to repeat this question. Okay. So you had mentioned that the 30s and the 40s was referred to as the golden age. And I'm wondering, why do they consider it the golden age? Was it just because it was so new? Like, uh, like, yeah, I, was it? Why? <laughs> like, why? Because like you said, there was so we have so much more science fiction. So I'm just wondering, was it the emergence of science fiction? Um a new genre? What? Why do you think they called it the golden age? Well, I'm just guessing, but I think it did have a lot to do with the newness of the genre. I mean, there were stories that we now consider science fiction much earlier, H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, but that was just considered an example of uh, literature back in the the late 1800s, early 1900s. It wasn't really a separate genre until later on. There was also a huge explosion of new technology in the 30s and 40s. Radio was a mass medium. Right. Uh, telephony got widespread. Uh, electrification was widespread. Rocketry was uh, beginning to happen. Yeah. Okay, and you get into the 40s and uh, World War II, Certainly, rocketry became very real to uh, most people, especially if you lived in England during the Blitz. Um, right. Radar, uh, the beginnings of computers. Uh, there was a huge number of magazines uh, that briefly flourished during the 40s and 50s. Now, logically speaking, this should be a whole other new golden age of science fiction because with webzines, there's also an incredible number of outlets for uh, science fiction, but uh, it isn't golden age too. At least it's not called that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right, Edward. So, what's next? What's next? What's next? Well, okay. You've mentioned uh, the Mars book that's coming out. Yeah. Uh, the the final title isn't uh, chiseled in stone yet, but the working title is Mars: Life and Death. 
personally, I still like that title, and no one's come up with a better one yet, so odds are that will be the title. Uh, I just delivered that last month to the publisher, so it's too soon to know a publication date. I would guess it's a good year out. The last story in uh, The Best of Edward M. Lerner is called On the Shoals of Space-Time. That's a novelette, and that's one of those stories that refused to let go, and uh, that led uh, to a novel by the same name. That will be out as a novel in May. Oh, nice. Uh, Very briefly, that's a first contact with alien stories, unlike anything I think anyone has seen before. Picture uh, a cruise ship between the stars. It's uh, piloted by by aliens. The passengers are all aliens. It has a terrible mishap along the way, and the few survivors manage to limp to the outskirts of our solar system. That's uh, in the Kuiper Belt that we talked about earlier, out beyond Neptune. And the only hope for uh, these few survivors is if the primitives who live uh, much closer to the sun can figure out a way to help And, you know, we primitive humans are barely able to get uh, into low Earth orbit, much less uh, get far, far out. So uh, whether these guys are going to survive is uh, rather iffy. This sounds good. This sounds very good. And that comes out in May? Comes out in May. Nice. Well, On the shoals of space time. Well, I hope you could come back on. I hope we can make that work, right? (laughs) Would be my pleasure. Okay. Well, Edward, this has been a blast. And I don't mean to pun in that. I've just, it just, it has been really, really interesting. And you, as you're talking, it, 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 you're getting me thinking. And that's always, I really, I really enjoyed this, even if my dogs did interrupt a few times, but thank you. I prefer to think the dogs were just enthusiastic. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, Edward. Well, have a good day. Thanks. You too.